against a backdrop of new and increasingly privatised space race that is going on, philosopher and author AC Grayling is asking an ever more urgent question, which is, who owns the moon? This is also the title of his latest work, in which he's exploring the new lust for this terra nullis, as he calls it, and argues that competition inevitably leads to conflict. AC Grayling is my next guest, and I asked him, who does own the moon? Nobody does, or we all do, which is the same thing. And so what issues, what problems, what gnarly little areas can that potentially bring forth? Well, it's first necessary to say that, of course, it's uh, in its way a wonderful thing, this development of more space exploration, the possibility of uh, bases on the moon that uh, allow for even more detailed exploration of Mars and our solar system. So there are lots of good things about it, not least in the technological developments that will come and the expansion of the human imagination and possibilities. I, I think in many ways it's a good thing. But there are also risks, and indeed quite serious risks. And the risks arise from the fact that there are resources on the moon, there are minerals, there's also water ice, which can be separated into uh, hydrogen and oxygen and therefore used for rocket fuel. And most of the actors who are now uh, investing hundreds of billions of dollars in wanting to be able to exploit those resources on the moon are private corporations. It's not just states now who are in the race for this, but private corporations. And when there is very heavy investment and when there is desire for a a profitable return, the the likelihood is that there will be competition. And competition too often in history has resulted in conflict. My anxiety is that this new frontier of exploration and development is a potential source of conflict, which will, of course, rebound on Earth unless there are some very, very strong, robust ways of managing that. And at the moment, there aren't. We'll talk a a little bit more about that in a moment. But I'm interested, too, in the concept of either we all own the moon or none of us own the moon. In some ways, that's two sides of the same coin. But potentially, that can prompt very different sort of impetus within people. Well, they they are the same thing, Uh, either nobody or we all do. And the thing is that the current and really rather inadequate treaty that governs what happens out in space, which is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty of the United Nations, says only that uh, outer space should not be a militarized zone. So bans weapons and it also, in fact, bans sovereignty claims. But as we see from the example of the Antarctic, these sovereignty can be got round by laying claim to zones of special interest. So, for example, some some corporation begins mining operations on the moon and asks its government to support it in declaring a special area of its own interest, forbidding other people from getting access to that area. And it's out of that kind of thing that you can see conflict arising from competition. And remember that the, the competition in question will be very fierce because Doing this uh, out there in space and on the moon is a very, very, very expensive business and it involves the development of technologies which um, most probably those who develop them will want to keep to themselves. So you can see that there's this this difficulty of treating outer space as what's sometimes called a terra nullius. That means a no man's land. 
and no man's lands are wild west. And it's the wild west aspect of this which is most concerning. You do mention Antarctica amongst other models, because, of course, there are global treaties, or there is a global treaty that covers Antarctica. And is it the type of model that we should be looking towards if perhaps we are going to make some sort of treaty for outer space? I believe it's part of of what's necessary. But you see, I talk about the Antarctic Treaty and also about the United Nations' very admirable efforts to try to get the international community to agree about what we should do with the oceans and the deep seabed of the high seas. And there the United Nations wanted to try to get agreement that the resources of the seabed in the oceans, which are very, very rich in mineral resources, would, if they were exploited by a country with the technological ability to do it, that that would benefit everybody. You know, if there were profits made from mining the deep seabed, that those profits should be shared with countries that don't even have a shoreline. That was the ambition of the United Nations. And you could see how you might try to assert that kind of ambition for outer space as well. But both the Antarctic Treaty and the United Nations efforts on the oceans look like very bad precedents for what might happen in space. For one thing, the Antarctic Treaty, which, by the way, is not a United Nations Treaty, it was agreed between the those parties that had previously claimed sovereignty over parts of the Antarctic, was a 1961 treaty mainly motivated by the anxieties of the United States and the Soviet Union that the other party would use it as a site for nuclear testing. But that treaty, which attempts to protect the Antarctic against uh, exploitation and mining and pollution, that treaty often held up as as a great example of what a good international treaty is, is now fraying at the edges. And that's a very worrying precedent. And the oceans attempt by the United Nations is even more worrying because major players like the United States won't sign up to it. They want their own private enterprise to be able to conduct uh, exploration and development of resources on the seabed. And so they won't even agree to it. Now, these are very bad precedents, therefore, for what might happen in space. And the other thing that that I cite in an example that we should take into account here is that when something is recognized as a potential resource for great profit, there tends to be a scramble, a gold Mm. rush. When there is a gold rush, then there is a a wild west. And you also cite the scramble for Africa, which I have to say, that was the one when I was reading the book that I suppose hit home in a slightly different way. Because, of course, in so many ways, that was a disaster. Well, I think that it has a large causative role in the First World War. And the First World War, of course, led to the Second, the Second to the Cold War. And we're living with the consequences and difficulties of that now. So, you know, what happened in the last couple of decades of the 19th century, when an entire continent, a vast continent, was just appropriated and divided between half a dozen or so European nations, that act, treating the people there as if they didn't count from any political or moral point of view, and treating the, the whole continent as if it were just, uh, well, again, a terra nullius, that, that it was just anybody's if they wanted to appropriate it. That has been like a running saw in history ever since. And, and you know, to think about uh, outer space, well, obviously, there are major differences, because there aren't, as far as we know, you know, sentient beings out in outer space. <clears throat> it really is a, a barren territory. But nevertheless, 
It's the competition angle and it's the propensity of competition to cause conflict, which is the key point in the analogy. Yes, because nation states and competing interests of humans don't always align with good of humankind. Well, uh, you, you say they don't always align. I'm afraid they rather do they ever? rarely do. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. I mean, that, that, I think, is the point. Because if you look at the um, pollution that we've experienced on our planet as the result, particularly of extractive industries, so mining and forestry and the fishing of the high seas, all this has been done in the interests of, of turning a money profit. I'm not against uh, um, commercial competition or, you know, people investing money in the hope of a return, especially if, if what they produce is something that people want and it's useful. But the rage for it, the lust for it, which goes beyond really the sort of rational bounds of it, that is something which is a too obvious propensity in humankind. You know, and I often point out to people, I ask people to consider the difference between a million dollars and a billion dollars. And when you think about it, a million seconds, if you look at your watch, a million seconds is a couple of weeks. But a billion seconds is 32 years. I mean, the difference between being a millionaire and a billionaire is absolutely vast. It's very difficult to imagine what you can do with a billion, let alone billions, plural, of dollars in a lifetime. So why is it? What is it that really drives this terrible hunger, which has been so destructive in too many places? And again, that's a worry, because this is some aspect of, you know, what drives uh, operations, what drives individuals, then outer space as a you know completely virgin terrain, potentially with very valuable resources, including resources which are now in short supply on Earth and mm. they're needed for our new technologies, our smartphones and, and our weapons and so forth. You can see what the you know inducements are for pouring a huge investment into it and being therefore very determined not just to get that investment back, but to make profit out of it. And that is a potential source of trouble and history teaches us that it is. We're not always very good at looking backwards at history to look forward to the future though and it is that combination as you say along with the possibility that actually technologically we potentially could do or we're not very far away from being able to mine for lithium or whatever on the moon. That's the tipping point, that's what makes this so particularly serious to consider right now. Yes, indeed. Uh, And, you know, one of the very striking things about humanity is that on the one hand, you have something like the UN, I'm afraid, you know, rather toothless, and yet full of the very, very best intentions. I have the greatest admiration for practically everything I read that comes out of the UN, because they always start by saying, you know, in the interests of peace and in the interests of cooperation, in the interests of benefiting humanity as a whole, we want to try to get this treaty or get these understandings and agreements. And I admire that hugely. And they're doing it, of course, on the basis of history, because the UN came into existence after the Second World War. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights was a response to the terrible atrocities that had occurred during the war. But these things tend to be ignored by another kind of person who says, well, the past is the past. You know, what we're interested now is uh, getting on in life and being successful, making money and just getting on with it. 
And it's those people who lie, as it were, under a law. Now, in a previous book, the one that came before this one, where I was talking about another set of risks that face our planet in technology and climate change and so on, I set out what I call, because it's a bad law, I call it Grayling's Law. And this law says anything that can be done will be done if it brings a profit to those who can get it done. Mm. So, for example... Even if the world community outlawed, I don't know, genetic modification of fetuses to produce six foot five, blue eyed, blonde haired Olympic athletes with an IQ of 200, okay? Mm -hmm. Even if we outlawed that because we wanted nature to, to be the determiner, nevertheless, people with the money and the capacity would do it. Everything will be done if it can be done, if it brings a profit. That's the terrible law that seems to govern. And this applies to what's going to happen in outer space. Because, again, if you think over the last few decades, if you think of the vast, vast sums of money that have been invested in what we see happening at this moment. You know, we looked last weekend that there was a successful landing on the moon by a private company mm. funded by NASA, commissioned it to do it. This is the Odysseus moon lander. But that's just one of many examples we've seen in the news recently. The race is hotting up. And, they, uh, you know, just given the tremendous expense of it, I mean, even the very successful Indian moon landing uh, was less expensive than the uh, Chinese and uh, American ones. But uh, nevertheless, it was pretty, pretty expensive. So there is an expectation of return. And when there's that expectation, you have the trigger for difficulties. Yes. And the added complication is that it's not just countries that we're dealing with. Although until fairly recently, it's always been nation states that have gone into space that's now changed with billionaires that are now able to do that as well. And so that scale, the scale of money, the scale of the financing and the tech and the influence, how much is that amping up the stakes to put all this on steroids? Yes, I, I think it really is. I mean, this really is injecting steroids into the situation. You see, because nation states, generally speaking, would abide by agreements, by, by treaties, so long as, as it's in their self-interest. I mean, admittedly, we've seen plenty of examples in history, including recent history, of treaties being abrogated by whoever no longer feels that they're benefiting from being a party to it. So, of course, that happens. But generally speaking, there's, the, there's a tendency for some kind of restraint when it's state actors who are dealing with one another. Now we have private actors, and we have private actors motivated by... Well, it's very difficult to imagine, actually, of some of the major billionaires who are involved in this that their motivation is is yet more money. Um, very probably it is the protection of the money that they've got. Also status, power, fame, um, being first, uh, being greatest. You know, those sorts of ambitions are connected. And if you think about the, the likelihood, therefore, that um, individuals who are driving these things will be much less rational as actors than states are, I mean, again, a state, you know, you think about a government, you might have some lunatic at the top of the government, uh, you know, I won't mention any names, but there will be people around that person who will say, well, hang on a second, think of this, think of that, there will be a team of people. But in the case of somebody who's really calling the shots because they've got the money in their pocket, then things are much less likely to be stable. So yes, it is a major difficulty that these are private enterprises, and the private enterprises leading the race at the moment are much the same thing as individuals who have the power, the capacity, the funds 
to do this. Mm. You're listening to Saturday Morning. And my guest is AC Grayling, Anthony Grayling. We are speaking to him about his latest work. It is called Who Owns the Moon? There is, of course, a treaty which already applies to outer space, but it's not up to the job? That's it, yes. There's the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Now, the United Nations came up with that treaty then, mainly under the impetus of the United States and the Soviet Union, who, as I said earlier, were very anxious that outer space might become a a nuclear zone. You know, the US had originally thought that the Antarctic might be a good place to test nuclear weapons, but then that idea was uh, quite properly um, set to one side. And then the risk was that the moon might be a place that you could test nuclear weapons. And what the US and the USSR did not want to do was to you know, let things heat up on the margins of what was already a difficult situation, the Cold War situation. Uh, in the case of the Antarctic, they were much more worried about the Arctic, of course, because the US and the USSR actually abut one another in the, in the Arctic. So this treaty was devised in 1961 for the Antarctic, 1967 for outer space, really as happy byproducts in a way of the Cold War situation. But when you read the text of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, you see it says no militarization and no claims to sovereignty, but otherwise anybody who can get there can do what they like. It actually explicitly declares the moon and the zone outside the orbital zone of Earth as a terra nullius. Mm. And this means that uh, now, of course, there are no restraints on what people who can get there can do. You know, for example, think of this, okay? The Apollo astronauts who landed on the moon, they left their diapers on the moon, presumably with microbes in them. Mm. We've seen some people want to send the ashes of their deceased uh, relatives to the moon. That's happened. Mm. We've also seen people sending up trinkets, you know, personal items that they want the astronauts or the lunar modules to, to leave on the moon. So bit by bit, of course, the moon becomes a rubbish dump and it becomes something where potentially life forms develop. And after all, we look at Earth, we look at the deep sea events, the huge high temperatures, we look at uh, frozen areas where life can flourish. Life is a very tenacious thing, could flourish anywhere. Mm. So we're, we're already looking at that kind of prospect. And that prospect is bad enough in itself. But the worst prospect, of course, is this. If you land a lunar module on the surface of the moon, then if there is another lunar module within number of kilometers of it, that other lunar module will be damaged by what happens when the first lunar module lands. In other words, the, the blast from the landing will affect probably mm. blast land all over its receptors and so on. So you can see that, that people are going to start saying, well, we've landed in this point, everybody else is going to keep out. And that, of course the making of boundaries, the building of walls, the assertion of rights over an area. That in itself is a trigger for conflict. Perhaps, though, in the current situation with politics right around the world, it seems like it might not be the best time to try to get some large either superpower or emerging superpower nations to all agree. Well, it is a very difficult time. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, the world is in a very unstable state at the moment. And there are those, and I'm afraid I'm among them, who feel very uneasy about the drift of international affairs towards more and renewed conflict. 
And we see the United States in the Artemis Accords bringing together a group of, of allies with whom they will cooperate on outer space matters. And we see China and Russia forming an axis and inviting people to join them in a group for space activities. A kind of reprise, in a way, of, of the Cold War standoff. Two major groupings of, of nations with the technologies and the money to do something about it there in space. Two opposing teams. That gives off a very, very bad vibe. Now, if it's uh, happily the case, I suppose that India is part of neither of those two enterprises, and it has its uh, space capacity, has indeed successfully landed a module on the moon. But then that reprises another memory, which is the non-aligned nations during the Cold War period. It looks as though history is repeating itself and not in a good way. Do you think that there's a sense that this may be an area that we're overthinking, that any plundering of resources on the moon or indeed further afield somewhere like Mars, it's going to be so practically difficult and come at such a high cost that it's still prohibitive. So therefore, our worries are unlikely at the moment. Well, there are two things to say about that. One, on the technology front, all you have to do is just look back over the landscape of the last 30 years or half century at the rate of technological development. I mean, today things are happening which were unimaginable 20 years or 30 years ago. Technologies developments are self-potentiating. As we develop new technologies, they enable yet more technological development. And we've seen the most extraordinary and what would have been literally, literally unimaginable just uh, you know, during the course of our lifetimes uh, actually happening now. So one cannot rest content with the thought it's all too expensive and it's all too difficult. The engineering problems, the scientific problems are actually very minor. It's the money and the will, which is the thing that has always been the main barrier uh, over these last couple of decades when it comes to exploiting resources on the moon. And those are now melting away as more actors get involved with very deep pockets. So the idea that we needn't worry because it's not going to happen anytime soon is both wrong in itself and also, in any case, it boots the problem down the track a little bit and why should we be doing that to successive generations were it, even were it true? Mm. Then the other thing to say is that, you know, overthinking, well, it seems to me that um, thinking ahead is generally speaking a good idea, that if you could put something in, in place, a framework, a set of really robust and binding agreements and enforceable agreements, which would restrain people from acting badly in outer space and trying to steal a march from one another. If we could do that now, our future selves would thank us. But if we just let the technological race overtake us, as indeed so many of our technological developments, and I could just a very obvious example, of course, is social media, which for all the, the benefits that it has, keeping us in contact with people, immediate access to information and so on, is also a very toxic domain. Misinformation and conspiracy theories and trolling and, you know, witch hunts of people and so forth. So that there are many respects in which it has a bad side, but that bad side wasn't anticipated and things weren't uh, put, put into place to try to mitigate the effects of it. So we should be learning here that it's much, much better to try to get things organized in advance than to just try and play catch up later, because playing catch up, generally speaking, doesn't work. Way back in the 1930s, it was hypothesized that, and that was at the very beginning of rocketry, people had begun to think then about the possibility of outer space law. 
Of course, it's taken a very, very, very long time for that idea even you know, to start uh, taking any kind of deep roots. But even at that point, um, there were people hypothesizing the possibility that there might be settlements on the moon or on Mars, and that in the future, as these settlements grew and became more numerous and more populous, they might want to assert their independence from Earth in the way that happened with the colonies of the 19th and 20th centuries. And now, you know, so here's a case of overthinking and thinking too far into the future. But you can imagine a kind of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds as a result of colonization of space and then the independence of, you know, of what's out there in space and the conflicts that might arise between Earth and its former colonies in space. Now, that would be overthinking because I think the technology and the, and the prospects of that probably are very remote. But what isn't remote is the desire to extract resources from the moon because that's going to happen very soon. Another thing that is not remote but is emerging almost every day, there seems to be a new story or development or leap that has been taken in AI. How do you view that? Well, again, you see, this is something which has both a tremendous upside and a tremendous downside. And the upsides and the downsides really are tremendous. I mean, already our lives, and for quite some time now, have been governed by AI, AI dedicated to very particular tasks. So the supplies in your supermarket, your bank account, the airplane that you fly in, I mean, across so many, many different aspects of our lives, AI is centrally operative and essential to what goes on and to our great benefit. No problem there. But with AI, with the idea of deep fakes and, and misinformation, with the idea of the use of AI modalities to monitor, surveil and control people's lives and activities. The fact that, uh, for example, now, and I speak as a, an, an academic, a teacher, the worry that we have with things like ChatGPT, you know, who's writing our student essays? How can we evaluate their capacities properly? Uh, to what extent will all the creative industries, for example, be upended? You know, you could just think of this. You could get um, an advanced chat technology to produce literally dozens of very, very plausible and compelling romantic novels, let us say, in a single afternoon. Well, that is the end of all the people who write romantic novels. It also cuts the cost tremendously of the publishing industry, which is why publishing will eventually go for it, or perhaps not even eventually, but quite soon. So you can see it will really make a big difference to how things work in our world. And, and that's just one example of many. So AI is something that we should be thinking about. And it's only now, here we are in 2024, the European Union, for example, is trying to think about some legislation or some constraints on AI. I've argued in print before now that every single AI system and product should come watermarked so that we know that it's AI. So if I, you know, am sent some information, it should have a watermark on it which says this content was generated by AI. Just as we want, for example, to know where political funding for political parties comes from, so we know what the agenda is behind it. But we need transparency, and that transparency has to be central to any endeavour to control what's happening. Are you optimistic about the future of AI, or do you think it's going to kill us all? <laughs> well, um, you know, I once imagined a scenario in which some super, super intelligent AI, what's called AGI, so this is AI which has the breadth and complexity of, uh, of human intelligence multiplied billions of times. And the scenario was that this AI actually turned out to be benevolent. 
And what it did was it took over the world, but in a good way. So it disabled all the nuclear weaponry and it redistributed all the wealth of the billionaires to all the poor people in the world and so on and so on. So you can see what, mm-hmm. what a fanciful imagination that was. <laughs> but there is a scenario anyway, however improbable, where AI turns out to be a benefit. But I would think of it as, as a very mixed blessing and all mixed blessings tend, unfortunately, to drift down to the bottom end. I mean, that tends again to be a tendency in human history that things sink towards the worst. Mm-hmm. And so I do worry about its applications. I, I very much worry about its applications. But at the same time, you ask me whether I'm optimistic. Well, I, you know, there is an alternative to optimism short of actually throwing yourself off a cliff. So we've got to be optimistic and we've got to keep putting out there the arguments, the thoughts, the considerations, the worst case scenarios, the encouragement to try to prepare, and above all, the encouragement to be informed because that is our great defense and our great power. If we know and understand about these things, we read about them, we equip ourselves with the information about them, then at least we are not the powerless victims of these tremendous changes in our world, which uh, are racing ahead of our general capacities to deal with them. Mm. Considering the situation with outer space, with the moon, how long does humanity have to get its act together on this? Um, It doesn't have any time at all, really. It should be thinking about this extremely seriously right now. I mean, it should be last week, last month, last year that we do this. Uh, So um, I'm hoping that um, a lot of voices are being raised now. I was delighted to see, in fact, when the first reviews of my book came out, immediately was got in touch with by various people in the States and elsewhere who had themselves been saying these things in private fora and in, and in meetings in their organizations and expressing their worries that we were just letting all this happening. We were seeing all these rockets firing off to the moon and we were seeing just how much was being invested in this activity. And yet, in the 1967 Outer Space Treaty is inadequate to deal with it. The attempt that the UN made In 1979, it tried to get another and stronger treaty, and there was no agreement. The major parties in the world would not sign up to something new. So what the UN did was it said, all right, let's have what in effect is a statement of aspirations. Let let us aspire to be good citizens uh, out there in space. Let's, Let's try to behave decently. Let's take one another into account. And so it was sort of an agreement, but it's a non-binding agreement. It's advisory, it's aspirational. And that's all we've got at the moment. And it seems to me to be, well, unsurprising in one sense because of the rate of development of technologies. But on the other hand, it seems very surprising that with all our knowledge of history, with all our understanding of how human beings, lovely as they can be individually and with such wonderful acts of kindness and cooperation that we see, but also how badly we can behave. And I'm afraid it's human bad behavior which is most motivated when there are questions of a return on investment. We've seen that again and again in history, and we're seeing this investment happening now, and we know that the the players involved are not interested in not getting a return, and they're not doing it for humanitarian reasons. And therefore, we should be putting something in place now, seriously, in order to manage what's going to happen. And when I say manage, Because, of course, I mean mitigation, because nothing in our world outside the beautiful islands of New Zealand is perfect. And that is AC Grayling.
Anthony Grayling there. His new book, Who Owns the Moon? In Defence of Humanity's Common Interests in Space. It is published by Bloomsbury.